0: All right, we are starting off in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. So if you have one of the Bibles from the back, it is page 8. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Second reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 1 to 9. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because his grace because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's the word, Lord.
1: Uh, yes, I've been very sick, and so um, if that is, if you hear my croakiness, that is why. And if I have to stop for a glass of water, <laughs> that is also why. Uh, but that's okay, because we are starting a new series uh, looking at the church. What is God's church? How does it work? What does it mean to be part of? Of the church, I'm really excited about this series. Um, As uh, Megan said, we are going to be having Q and A's after every sermon for this series because um, these sorts of series tend to raise lots and lots of questions that we can't cover uh, in the sermons. So uh, be aware of that as we move through. Uh, Let's pray together before we jump in. Gracious God, uh, we thank you uh, that you are a God who calls and a God who calls people to yourself. And that you have called us here today in Kensington to be part of your global and universal church. The saints across the ages from beginning to end who will one day come together before the throne room of God to worship and glorify your name forever and ever. We thank you that because of Jesus we get to be part of that glorious crowd. So Father help us by your spirit. Uh, to look deep into the depths of the great mystery that is the church, the body, the bride of Christ. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen. Can Facebook replace the church? Yes? No? Maybe? I'm not sure either. But Mark Zuckerberg is sure. Uh, uh, just uh, the last month, uh, it's been going around the blogs that Zuckerberg uh, announced that the days of the church are over, uh, at least as in terms of being a community rallying point. Uh, in his mind, the church's days are over, it's now up to Facebook to fill the gap to create communities of purpose and meaning. He even acknowledged that these new Facebook communities would have to have pastors to look after them and to look after the needs and welfare of their members. Which, I guess, as I thought about it, means that Mark Zuckerberg would therefore be the senior pastor of the Facebook church, Pastor Zuckerberg, Uh, which is unprecedented, (laughs) I imagine. Uh, But I guess this is nothing new in some ways. Like, uh, over... For however many ages uh, the word has gone, gone out through whatever media or news cycle that the church has done. It's dilapidated. It is a product of a past era. It's like a vintage car that you know some enthusiasts might like to take out on weekends every now and then, but their days are number. They won't be able to last much longer. It's just a curiosity. Now, of course, uh, we would say otherwise, right, because we are Christians and we are here gathered today. Otherwise, it would be a bit weird. But I think that Christians are often not so good at answering the question, what is the church, how does it work, and why is it important, and why do we commit to it, why do we believe in it? Christians often have a really good understanding of what it means to be saved, to be a Christian, to, to be part of the kingdom of God, to have um, an exciting future and hope in Jesus to look forward to, but not so good at understanding how the church fits into all this. Is it just a waiting room for Christians or is it something much, much more? Well, my prayer is that at the end of these seven weeks, we will have a much greater understanding of what the church is and also a far greater love and commitment for God's church. Well, today we're starting with exactly what is the church? Now, it's one of those questions that, again, is kind of, Uh, A bit difficult to do in a single sermon because there are Bible college libraries out there that have entire corridors dedicated to this question, what is the church? But at least let's try and do a basic introduction today. So what is the church? Well, it's many things, but I'm going to pick three. It is the covenant people of God, the missional people of God, and the holy people of God. You got that? It is the covenant people of God, the missional people of God, and the holy people of God. So, first, what does it mean to be the covenant people of God? Uh, I remember right back to when I first started um, studying the Bible at Ridley College, um, and I went to one of my first lecturers, uh, Lectures was Church History. Uh, And my professor got the front, and he looked at us, and he said, "Uh, I want to ask you a question. When did the church start? Now, because we're all first-year Bible college students and clearly knew everything there was to know, all of us put our hands up very, very confidently just to show him, you know, that we really don't need this basic stuff. And we said, Pentecost course pentecost you know the the beginning of the church the sending down the spirit the 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 time when the um when the, the disciples of jesus coalesced into this movement of people that's the beginning of the church and the professor smiled at us slightly condescendingly and he opened his bible and he read out genesis chapter 12 verses 1 to 3 the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He went on to say that it is true that maybe the, the Christian church may have been birthed at Pentecost. But God's people were birthed far, far, far earlier on the day that God called Abraham to be the beginning of a great nation. They were birthed out of God's covenant. What exactly is a covenant? Well, a biblical covenant is when God and God's people make a binding promise. With each other. God promises to be their God, to love them, to protect them and guide them, and they promise to be His people, to worship Him, serve Him, and obey Him. The relationship here is not a covenant of just, uh, it's not like a business deal. It's like a covenant between a family, of a father and a child. It's full of love, it's full of dependence, it's full of embrace. This is when God's people started and it shows us that this is a God who calls. God is a God who calls. He takes the initiative. From the very beginning, he takes the initiative to start a relationship with people and with the most surprising of people. Abraham was uh, a nomadic tribesperson of no consequence in the wider world. And yet he is called out of obscurity to be the father of many nations. So God doesn't call the richest or the strongest or the most religious. He calls the weak and lowly, the obscure in the world, to change the world through him. The problem, of course, uh was that as this covenant was set up and and the nation of Israel grew out of the family of Abraham, it was revealed that there was a problem. And the problem was that while God is faithful to his covenant and keeps his promises, Israel, his people, could not. Time and time again, God chose himself to be faithful and yet Israel showed themselves to be unfaithful and rebellious so something would have to happen for this situation to be dealt with and it turns out that god had revealed himself very early on as not just the god who calls but the god who redeems god redeemed his people out of egypt out of slavery through the red sea and now god would have to sh- would would show us and show them that, this, that the exodus out of Egypt was just a foretaste of the kind of redemption that he would enact in order to maintain his covenant with his people. It's no coincidence that the life of Jesus mirrors the story of Israel. Have you ever noticed? Both were born into obscurity. Both were exiled into Egypt. Both Israel and Jesus was delivered through a slaughter of newborn sons. As Israel passed through the Red Sea, Jesus passed through the, sea, through the waters of the Jordan River in baptism. And just as Israel spent 40 years wandering the desert, Jesus spent 40 days wandering the desert, being tempted by the devil. Now, we might say this is just a bit of a coincidence, but no, the biblical writers are trying to make a very, very important point. Jesus was not just a good Jew, even the Son of God. Jesus came to be the better Israel. He was Israel as Israel should have been, but couldn't be. In every way that Israel was unfaithful, Jesus was faithful. Just as they were disobedient, Jesus was perfectly obedient. And just as they continually broke God's law, Jesus came and fulfilled the law. In his life, he was everything Israel should have been. And in his death, he became everything Israel needed him to be. The good shepherd became the Passover lamb. His blood became a pathway of redemption greater even than the rescue from slavery in Egypt. The cross became rescue from a far greater slavery, that of sin and death. By doing this, by becoming the new and greater Israel, Jesus fulfilled the covenant that Israel could not have done. He signed and sealed a new covenant in his blood. And the newness of the new covenant is not that it's a different covenant. No, it's it's always been the same covenant, the covenant between God and his people. What's new about this is that our side is no longer kept by us sinful people who fail, but by Jesus who succeeds. Jesus represents us. Uh, remember in Matthew, um, Jesus... Uh, told Peter that he would build his church on him as a foundation stone. You know, on this rock I will build my church. It's really interesting that the word that Jesus uses for church here is the Greek word ecclesia. It just uh, it literally means those who are called out, or another way to put it, a gathering. Literally, it's the same word used of Israel when they gathered together to hear God's word. Literally, the the called out people of God. And now we know why. This this is not just a a nice word that just happened to fit the context. Jesus is saying that this is not just some new organization, but this is the succession of Israel. The church was not God's plan B. It's not just kind of uh, another option because Israel didn't turn out. No, the church is the new Israel. I listened to Paul at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Uh, In verse 2 he says, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. The church as we know it Is a new Israel, and she consists of those who God calls out of darkness into light, and those who call upon Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Now extended not just to Jews, but to Gentiles as well, to us here. And something else is different. God is now with the church in a way he never was with Israel the Holy Spirit lives in the hearts of every believer. The temple of God is no longer made of stone, but it's a community of people indwelt by God himself. The Spirit sears the new covenant and its terms upon our hearts. And so, first and foremost, this is what the church is. God's covenant people. The the end point of God's redeeming and calling work that started all the way back with Abraham, even before that, before time began, even before the world was made, the church is the epitome of God's plan to redeem a people for himself, to call a people into his covenant. So we are called by the Father, redeemed by the Son, indwelt by the holy spirit the god who is three in one calls us his church to be part of their life together as they come and bring their life into ours so that's what the church is but then uh, what does the church do what is the church's function well the church's function is to be the missional people of god you know, it's interesting, um, over the last uh, maybe decade, I guess, there's been uh, a new business trend developed in companies around uh, their purpose. Now, it used to be that a company would just put up a mission statement, and it's just about um, making a good product at a fair price to give to consumers who want it. But apparently, that's not good enough anymore. Uh, things have pivoted. Things have, to have changed. Companies are racing to find a way to develop what they're calling a shared purpose. What they're doing is they're trying to find a way to invite customers not just to be the recipients of their mission, but to be part of their mission. Uh, To illustrate, check out this one company's uh, mission statement. Our mission, to inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup and one neighbourhood at a time. Starbucks. You see what they're trying to do? They're trying to say, don't just drink our coffee. Change the world by drinking our coffee. <laughs> it's very different, isn't it? Now, we, this makes us cringe a bit because, I mean, come on, guys. It's coffee. And it's Starbucks coffee at that. I'm like, I totally believe coffee can change the world. but I do not believe that Starbucks coffee can do that. But they tapped into something real, right? Because it's working. This kind of marketing campaign is really working. Why? Because people are wired to desire participation in something greater than themselves. To be drawn up into something transcendent, something big, something transformative. We have this innate sense of common mission. We want to be part, we want to collaborate and these companies like Starbucks, they know it. And they're marketing off it. Of course this is true, because we're created for this. Never in history has a has a mission statement impacted the world more than the last few words of Genesis 12.3. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Those words kick-started a history traversing trajectory that will take us from Genesis 12 all the way through to Revelation 22. The mission of God declared in the simplest of terms to bless the world through God's people. And as the story continues, that blessing is revealed to be far more cosmic in scale than Abraham could possibly have imagined in his wildest dreams. Because God's ultimate mission, as revealed in Jesus, is to reconcile, restore, and renew all things under him. And the most amazing part is God has no plan to accomplish this apart from his church. He doesn't have another plan. There is no plan B. God's only plan is to reconcile, restore, and renew the cosmos under Christ through his church to use his people to bless the world. It's interesting that Jesus rarely uses the word church in the Gospels, only twice, and one of them uh, we've already talked about. But he did regularly use the term kingdom of God. He said, the kingdom of God has come near. Well, what does he mean? Well, kingdom of God is a shorthand term for God's redeeming work as it breaks into history. The kingdom grows as more and more people become caught up in what God is doing through Jesus. And so if Jesus is King Jesus, if he is the king of the kingdom, then we are, the church, citizens of his kingdom. And as citizens, we love and serve the king, right? But that's not all we do. Our responsibility is also to extend the borders of the kingdom. And how do we do that? Well, we do it, Not through war or invasion or acquisition. We do it by being ambassadors. The church is God's kingdom embassy. And it is through his kingdom embassy that he communicates his love and grace to the world. Through us, God extends his invitation to the world to come and participate in his covenant. Martin Luther, uh, the great German reformer, uh, put it like this. Anyone who is to find Christ must first find the church. How could anyone know where Christ is and what faith is in him unless he knew where his believers are? Luther's point is that the only way anyone comes to, to Christ is if they see his followers in action. That makes sense, right? Because no one adopts a complete change in their life unless they're certain that there's something to it, that that it might just work. So the church is not only to talk about the gospel and proclaim the good news, but to live out the gospel and demonstrate it. Proclaiming the gospel is what we do to explain why it is that we believe what we believe and live the way we do. It's... In some ways, ridiculously simple, and yet, over the last two millennia, this is how the kingdom of God has grown, through very, very ordinary, everyday people living out the good news of the gospel of grace in their everyday lives and telling people about it as people come and join and ask questions. It started as small as a mustard seed. But now the kingdom is a great tree expanding to fill the whole world. And as the tree grows larger, it also becomes more complex, doesn't it? I mean, it's amazing to think back of the last 2,000 years that the church now spans the globe in every country to almost every language. And it, and it keeps expanding every day. And it is now so complex, isn't it? It's, it's, every culture means that there are now so many different expressions of the church across the world. Denominations and churches and movements. And that's okay. Because as the tree grows and it becomes more complex, so must its structure. Its structure must grow to support the growth, otherwise it just falls over. The church cannot just be an organic movement of people; it has to also be an organisation. And you know, one of the most common complaints I hear from people, you know, in and outside the church, is that it's too structured. The church would be so much better if we just got rid of all the institutional elements of it and just got back, stripped back to basics. Just got just were people. Everything would be so much better if we just did that, but. What people tend to um, not realize is that Jesus founded an institution, not just a movement. As soon as he told Peter to be a foundation stone of the church, it became something more than just a loose cluster of friends. And the book of Acts tells a story of how the church grew very organically, yes, as, as people um, came into a relationship with Christians and became believers. But at the same time, as the church grew, the apostles knew that it had to become more structured. More leaders had to be trained and commissioned and ordained. More uh, layers had to be developed so that, not, so that everyone would be cared for and so that no one would miss out. And as the church went from city to city and and moved into different cultures and across nations and languages, we found that the church had to look a bit different because the mission looked different. We need structures. We need hierarchies of leadership. We need good accountability. We need good governance. But here's the thing. The structure must always support the mission. Never the mission, the structure. If the trellis is too intricate, the vine cannot grow. But neither can the vine grow if there's no trellis at all. A question I often get is why we need so many denominations. (laughs) And I get that actually. I heard of, I was talking to Chris a little while ago and we heard of one... um, a denomination where their church has on the, fr- the front page of their bulletin is a statement about why they're no longer part of their previous denomination. And I thought, well, if that's your main message that you're trying to get across, then I think something's gone wrong. Maybe, maybe there is some point to the, f- to the idea that the church maybe should not split so easily and so quickly. But at the same time, I do believe that we live in an incredibly diverse world. And so to reach that world, we need an incredibly diverse church. And I thank God that he has made it that way. For every uh, diverse person, there is a church style or language or format or emphasis that will speak the gospel into their hearts in a way that they can hear it. And that's wonderful. So we should celebrate not just the organic nature of our church, but also the institutional nature of it as well, because that is what helps us to stand the test of time. So the uh, identity of the church, God's covenant people, the function of the church, God's missional people. Finally, the destination of the church is to be God's holy people. Uh, as I said, I was uh, down with a flu for the last few days, and so was kind of out to the world on most fronts, uh, and so I wasn't able to make our missional community on Thursday night. Um, uh, but I heard later that the discussion was really rich and great, and one of the things they talked about was what Megan's already mentioned. I uh, was in the news this week, uh, plastered everywhere. This the ABC's report into domestic violence in the church, and so I caught up and uh, I read through the articles yesterday. And it was shocking and really long. (laughs) And I don't mean that in a funny way. I mean, it was horrible. Story after story after story, scrolling down and down, down, down the page. Instance after instance of precious, precious women who have been, who found not in the church a sanctuary from violence and oppression, but. Silen- but, be- but silence. It's horrible. The article started like this. Uh, Research shows that the, m- that the men most likely to abuse their wives are evangelical Christians who attend church sporadically. Advocates say the church is not just failing to sufficiently address domestic violence, it is both enabling and concealing it. That's horrible because this is our tribe evangelicals. This is not something far away for someone else to deal with. This is us. This is what we stand for. It broke my heart. How could it be? How could we allow this to happen? How could the church allow it to happen? How could the Bible be be allowed to be so twisted so as to bring pain and torment instead of light and hope into the lives of these women? It's just more coals heaped on our head, isn't it? As we still deal with the ramifications of the Royal Commission, and so and it, it, we cannot ignore the fact that the Church has failed to protect the vulnerable in our midst. Christianity's opponents aren't going to stop there either. They'll point out that the last two thousand years has gives us a seemingly endless list of corruption and violence and ignorance within the church of God. And the problem is that they're right. The church is full of hypocrites. We say we worship this great God of love and grace and fellowship, and yet so often we fail and fall short to extend it into our lives and into the world. It's not all bad, sure. The church has done wonderful things. Our church has done wonderful things. And yet it's tarnished, isn't it? And the reputation is tarnished. Boy, it was a tension not just for us, but also for Paul. Look how he begins this letter to the Corinthians. To the church of God in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. The words sanctified and holy here are very close in meaning. They both mean to be set apart for God's special purposes. And it includes being set apart and bearing the character of the God who's called them. It's quite a stunning statement because the church in Corinth was messed up. Just a few of their issues were they had leadership factions, schisms, class discrimination, chaotic church services. They were taking each other to the court and suing each other. And they were engaged in such severe sexual immorality that Paul says that even the pagans around them wouldn't tolerate such behavior. There might be many words to describe this kind of a church, Right? I wouldn't imagine anywhere near the top of the list would be holy and sanctified. And yet that's what Paul calls them. The church of God is holy, not because it is perfect. In fact, far from it. The church of God is holy because God has called it holy. Remember that our end of the covenant is no longer held up by us. It is held up perfectly by Jesus. We have been redeemed by him and united to him. And that means that everything God says about Jesus, he now says about his church. Because apart from him, we are dead in our sins, but united to him, we are declared sanctified and holy. That is what is true in the heavenly realms, but it's not the end of the story. Paul says in uh, verses 8 and 9, God will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We've seen the beginning of the church. Here is the destination of the church, to be revealed on the last day as blameless. Blameless. And Revelation gives us that picture, doesn't it? Is the church is the bride of Christ coming down out of heaven, beautifully adorned for her husband, adorned in perfection and splendor. The church has been declared holy by God and will one day be revealed as holy to the universe. The problem is that we live in the in-between times. We live in the now and the not yet. We live as people of the promise that God, who is faithful, will take his church and make her holy. The Spirit's job now is to make what is true in the heavens become true on the earth. So in no universe are we excused from taking responsibility to live holy lives, both as individual Christians, but also as the church corporate. We cannot allow sin to infect the church. What did Paul say when the Corinthian church was going off the rails? He said, get rid of sin, expel it, deal with it. He used strong language with them. Even as at the same time he calls them holy and sanctified. His point is, and our point as well, is that we must strive with every ounce of strength the Spirit gives us to purify the church and to purify our lives, to root out sin, to repent with sincerity, and to make amends when we do wrong. Not to hide, not to justify, to self-justify, not to become self-righteous, Not to excuse, not to make, to give reasons why things have happened the way we've done, but to simply own up that we are indeed sinful and broken people, part of a sinful and broken church. Michael Horton writes, Where most people think that the goal of religion is to get people to become something that they are not, the scriptures call people call believers to become more and more what they already are in Christ our goal is not to become something that we are not but to become more and more what we already are holy and sanctified the covenant people of God so when we see horrible things happen in the church we should not be surprised because after all the church is not a museum for dusty saints but a hospital for broken sinners. And we should read things like the report on domestic violence and swiftly say sorry, and indeed I am sorry, that any woman has ever found that the church has been anything but a sanctuary from violence. At the same time, we should remember who we are and what God is making us to be. We should look at his church tarnished and dirty as she is, And see in her something of the glorious bride that she will become. The bride that she will one day be revealed to be when the whole universe begins to see her as God sees her. A people called to be his own possession. Finally, Paul writes in verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. No one will ever replace God's church. Neither Mark Zuckerberg or anyone else for that matter. Not because of anything we are, but because of everything that Christ is and because of the grace that has been poured out into us, out of his gospel. God's covenant people are called, formed, and will stand firm to the end only because of the grace of Jesus. The grace of God's call the grace of Christ's redemption, the grace of the Spirit's empowering presence, the grace that sends us out on the mission despite our failings, the grace that opens our mouths to declare the good news, the grace that opens our hands to love and serve the least and the lost. By grace, we are no longer what we once were. And by grace, we are not yet what we will become. And by grace, we are what we are. Praise be to God. And actually, that's the good news, isn't it, for the world? The good news is not to become and join the church and find a perfect community. The good news is to come, join the church, and find grace. Because the world needs it just as much as we do. And we, as God's embassy, sending out ambassadors and little forays into the world, to declare that good news. That is our mission. And it springs out of who we are as God's covenant people. Amen. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and then uh, I'll take some questions if anyone has any. Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, indeed Jesus has poured out his grace on us. Uh, It's so hard sometimes, Father. We live in, um, in a world that is broken and in a church that is broken. And we are appalled by the things that sometimes happen in the name of God. Father, I pray that you will purify your church. Make her spotless and clean. Reveal her, Lord, as the bride of Christ, beautifully adorned. And we look forward to that day, Lord, the day to come, when Christ is revealed and, her, and his church with her, with him. To see her on that day, that will be a wonderful, wonderful thing. In the meantime, Lord, sanctify us more and more to become more and more like Christ. Root sin out from your church. Remove evil and maliciousness. Make us bold, Lord, to proclaim uh, the gospel, not just to the world, but to ourselves. Amen. Any questions? it's a really good question yeah so um a great analogy is actually um uh well i'll I'll step back for a little bit sorry oh sorry i'll repeat the question so the question is um how do we speak about the church when it is uh, both a a movement an organic movement of people but also a structured institution how do we talk about church to other people Mm -hmm. um a great illustration from nature is our own bodies right we are the you know the most organic organisms around, uh, and yet we have a skeleton, and we need a skeleton to hold ourselves up, but we're not just a skeleton, we are a muscle and we are also you know a heart we're a spirit as well uh, so we are um, m- most things in nature uh, are both a structure and also um, an organism. so I find it a really helpful way to look at it. How do we speak about it? Uh, I, I'd never, uh, I've never. i been trying to wean myself off saying that we, that I go to church. I like to say, I'll say that I will um, uh, go to a church service or go to a church gathering, uh, but not that I will go to church. I'd rather say, and I'm trying to teach myself to do this, to say, no, I am part of a church. I'm part of one. I'm a member of one. Um, and that membership um, looks different. Depending on the day, sometimes it means that we gather in different ways as the people of God. Um, So I I think it's good not to say that we go to church, but that we gather with the church um, and that we are part of it, we are members, we are, um, uh, yeah. Does that help? Anyone else? Yeah, Julie. Yeah, great question. So the question is, um, apart from saying sorry, um, which is really really important, by the way, that we do that publicly and without excuses, um, how do we, how should the church, and how do we respond to things like domestic violence um, in the church, and uh, maybe more practical ways as well? Is that, is that about right? Yep. Um, yeah, it's uh, a great question. I was actually really, as much as the as the article that I read yesterday by Julia Baird um, was really shocking, uh, I was also Rather encouraged as well um, because as I read down, she included a bunch of quotes um, from our own Archbishop, other members of the Anglican Church, Evangelicals, um, and Richard Condi, um, former Vicar of St. Jews, now Bishop of Tasmania, um, who have responded to that article really honestly and actually saying, Hey, you know what? We've been working hard at this for years now. And, the, and here's the list of the programs and the, what we now expect of clergy, what we expect of our ministers, the sorts of checks and balances we're doing because we've seen it and we want to do something about it. I thought that's great. That's great. Um, and, and so it's encouraging that, at least in, uh, again, this, the, this is what's good about having an institution. We can have um, policies and, um, and structures put in place that can actually prevent um, uh, abuse of power, which is wonderful. So I think I was encouraged by that. And what I would also say, though, is that um, for us it, uh, on the ground, to be absolutely 100% firm on what we know to be true and right in our own church. It starts with us here. It, it's good to have policies and stuff at a bigger level. It starts with us. It starts with us being really, really firm about sin. It starts with us being quick to confess, uh, quick to repent, uh, quick to own up, and quick to take responsibility. It starts with our own leadership, even here in our small situation. Um, that's where it starts. Um, and then on a bigger level, to uh, make sure that we are absolutely um, rigorously follow the kind of guidelines um, and the checks and balances that our own Denomination puts in place for us to follow. Um, and then, uh, I think to, to, um, yeah, I I think the other thing that I'm really, really keen about, and what I unfortunately saw in some of the comments and different things around the place, was not to make excuses because it's really easy to say sorry, but also just to kind of excuse the behaviour a bit and say, oh, well, that's a out, that's a, that's an exception, or they didn't really understand what was going on, what that sort of thing. And I really think that's unhelpful um, and just comes across as just kind of weak. <laughs> I think, there's um, I, I an Anglican minister in the Northern Territory who, who wrote a public apology and I loved its honesty and brutal willingness not to make excuses. I thought it was really helpful. Uh, does that sound good? Cool. Uh, well Wayne got up first, I think. Sure. Wayne's about as sick as I am.
2: I'm sick because it's your fault, Pete. Um, I just want I just want to add on to that since we're on this topic because um, I think it's actually really important to also remind ourselves, as me and Unchi had been sort of reflecting on this news as well, is that it's also equally important for, especially for for the men in this church, to be a lot more mindful and discerning and be watchful for each of us i think as i processed that information i started to think in my head oh well you know um i could i could actually think of a few people i know in the evangelical church who are my friends who could possibly very very possibly lean on a a bit of a you know abusive relationship side and i think the problem with a lot of these domestic abusers is that if it's not physical it could be emotional. It could be verbal. And then the problem with that is it's not always very obvious. It's very subtle. And then you know it's it's it, it becomes harder to identify um, whether y- abuse does happen on a on a on a vocal and emotional level in the church. So I think it's really important for uh, and I'm I'm just saying this as a man and for the men to be really watchful of each other. Um, and I was actually watching a DNA video from Soma, um, completely off track, but this guy was basically saying that DNA has actually helped him um, to be more accountable in his marriage. So someone in his DNA group um, had noticed that in church he was sort of treating his wife a little bit um, on the harsh side and unfairly, and he had to pull him aside and just very gently rebuke him and say, hey, do you think this is the right... Do you think this is healthy for your marriage? Do you think it's the right way to speak to your wife, to treat your wife? And he thought about that, and it's like, no, that's not not the healthiest way, and that's not the godly way. But he can only get to that because of really close, intimate accountability among the men. So I think that's a plug to do DNA. (laughs) That's really helpful. And actually... um,
1: I noticed in Julie Baird's article, she said that people, men most likely to be abusers were in the church, were those who were not in community. Those who are only coming to church on Sundays, like every now and then, kind of on the fringe. That's where it most likely happens. When you're in community and you're in good accountability, yeah, that's it's it goes a long way so that we can, yeah, as, as we um, call each other to account and to a higher standard of holiness. So, yeah, thanks, Wayne. That's really helpful. Uh, Nino, I think you were next. So the question is, is it wrong to attend two or many churches? Hmm. Uh, Really good question. Um, Is it wrong? No. Is it helpful? I'd say also probably no. And here's why. I think God um, uh, has uh, set up his church to be um, his family right um, and to be to be part of his family means to have really really deep relationships so to have the sort of relationships that Wayne's talking about where you know each other so well that you can hold each other to account my personal belief is that while it's not I don't think particularly like wrong to go to or attend many many different churches or a couple of churches um But it is probably very unhelpful not to um, have a a situation where you spend enough time there that you're part of that family, and they know you, you know them, and you can hold each other to account. Because that's what part of God's family is for. Um, And the danger is that we can um, slip into kind of a consumer mentality, where it's kind of like, well, I'll, I'll go to this church to get this because... I like their music. I'll go to this church to get the preaching because I like their preaching. i go to this church to get their coffee because I like their coffee. Uh, And this is um, so prevalent in our society that this idea that I go somewhere to get things and if I need to go to multiple places to get things, then I'll do that. But God's church doesn't work like that. Uh, God's church is meant to be a community of people who are committed to each other. So in my, uh, I think that, um, committing to one local church and really committing to it and, and 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 seeing that as your family is, um, by far the best way to go, um, and probably the most biblical way to go as well.